Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on a cloudy day here in the capital city as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. My name is Scott Challoner and I'm delighted to be joined on today's programme by Neil Sator. Neil is the head teacher of Wombridge Primary School in Telford, Shropshire. Neil, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us today. Good morning, Scott. Thank you. Good morning, Neil. It's an absolute pleasure having you join us. Now, um, the purpose of this discussion is to establish first and foremost your take on leadership. So starting with that word leader, if we consider that just for a moment, I'm interested to understand what that word actually means to you and how it resonates on the whole. Oh, um, wow. Uh, Jack of all trades, I think, at at, at the moment, Scott. Um, yeah, leadership for, for us at the school, our, our vision statement is is lead the way to life and we encourage all the children um, to be leaders um, of their own future and their, their own um, ambitions. Um, with relation to the, the current situation, I, I think it's just um, about keeping calm, carrying on, um, a sensible approach, just, just bringing um, the expertise and the team together, making sure that everybody's on, on board with what we're doing and um, as best I can leading for the front and, and just making sure we, we, we take um, sensible steps forward and, and respond to everything that's being thrown at us. So, um, yeah, jack of all trades, I think, leader. And quite often, especially in times such as this that we're going through at the moment with the COVID-19 pandemic, no less, we often look to those above us within institutions, organisations and businesses for a little bit of reassurance during times like this, but also a bit of inspiration as well. But when you are sort of the head teacher, the CEO, the person at the top of the tree, as it were, in your situation, where do you draw inspiration from in times like this? Um, a variety of sources, I think, Scott. Uh, you know, we're keeping calm and carrying on. I would keep going back to that. We we um, have a good track record. We've, we've been doing what we've been doing for uh, ten years. We've got we we place a lot of uh, importance on our core values, um, a lot of importance on on team and people buying into what we're doing. Um, we're teaching the children to be resilient. We're teaching the children to uh, respond to the challenges of the future. Um, so really, this has been a time where we've we've had to put our money where our mouth is. Um, so it's been a very dynamic situation, but we have, in many ways, had to upscale things that we were doing um, previously. I think as schools, uh, in general, schools are pretty resilient, reactive places. Um, we used to respond in, admittedly, not on this scale or in this time frame, uh, to changing political climates, new national initiatives, so on. Uh, we just had to, you know, dynamically and and, and quickly filter down what, what were the priorities, um, what were the, the key uh, things we needed to get right at, at uh, various stages for, for us and our school community. And you talk about, of course, the need to be reactive there, hugely important, being adaptable and flexible, especially at times like this. But also it's important to be proactive um, as well and have plans in place, but also be able to adjust to changing guidelines, changing circumstances. Very important in leadership, very important in the context of the here and now, of course. Um, And considering we mentioned the fact that that 
adaptability needs to come because circumstances can change incredibly quickly. I want to just touch on, of course, existing guidelines that have been in place at the moment throughout the pandemic thus far. Given the debate around clarity and transparency regarding those guidelines, and I consider those, of course, very important elements of leadership within their own right that need to be clear and transparent, do you think that the guidance that you've received as a school throughout this has been sort of clear enough and you've known fully what's been expected of you? Um, simple answer is yes. Uh, the way the way I I work, but I I'd only be the spokesperson for for my my school, my my staff, and my pupils and the and the community. Um, we we've kind of been um, throughout this approach, sort of working as a team, trying to look over the horizon, if you if you like, Scott, see what's coming. Um, and then as guidance has come through, we we've been able to dovetail that to our to our sort of plans as a school so yeah you know it's it's been a very dynamic situation for everybody i'm sure um but we, we have been able to see what was coming over the horizon and you know we planned together as we normally would what systems we needed to get in place what was likely to be a sensible approach um and what would work for us and and as i say when the guidance then arrived we were able to dovetail that into our plans um that we were already there to to implement that that's what we've done at every stage um, and we're still doing. We're doing that. We, you know, we're, we're now fully open for all year groups. Um, every uh, child who, who wants to be in school, their, their parents want to be in school, they're in. We're still supporting those parents who are still a bit anxious and stay in touch with those those parents with with home learning. Um, and you know, we're, we're we're now in sort of looking over the horizon for September when um, you know education becomes compulsory again and how we respond to that. So um, yeah, it, it's. My my position is it's been been filtering the barrage of information, the barrage of guidance, and and just looking at the salient points as to you know what what the government needed us to do at every every stage, and um, you know that that's absolutely nothing compared with what the NHS have had to had mm. to face. I'm- well, I actually read um, a couple of weeks ago, um, actually, that um, it's around about 60% of classroom time that could be lost in the year 2020 alone. So the education sector, of course, when it comes to September, is up against a great deal in trying to sort of get pupils to uh, to catch up, of course. Um, but do you think that any features of the lockdown period in terms of education provision could end up becoming permanent parts of the way that education is delivered in this country or do you expect a return to some sort of normal even if that includes having social distancing in place i you know the, the future is always full of challenges always full of optimistic opportunities I, I think um you know we as i say we've got our core values as a school what's important to, to me is that everyone feels safe and happy that's that's guided us for 10 years everybody having that right um you know we work in a very disadvantaged area um you know, but I'd say the majority of our parents, you know, they are they they don't want to be condescended or patronised by that. They love their children dearly. Um, they they want to achieve social mobility for their children and support us in in empowering their, their children to lead the way to life. That's that's not going to change. That's what we've done for nine years. Um, you know, this this terrible situation has has, has come along. Um, we've dealt with that the best best we can. I'm 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 not really focusing on on sort of you know. The naysayers and the, and the negativity that, that's, that's out and about, we, we've got to respond to, to where we are. Um, and, you know, as, as, that, as that unfolds, hopefully come September, we'll be back to compulsory education again. Um, you know, and we'll, we'll rebuild and we'll, we'll move forward. There will be challenges, but there will also be opportunities, I'm sure. 
But I suppose the experience of managing a crisis such as this and getting through it is going to sort of galvanise not just yourself and, of course, the senior leadership of the school, but also perhaps the other uh, pupils as well to an extent, having had this oh, experience. Definitely. definitely. And, and, I mean, I have to say that our community has been absolutely fantastic. You know, the, the, the parents have been incredibly supportive. But obviously, we, you know, there's an awful lot of anxiety for, for all of us um, um, across every sector, I should imagine. Um, you know, but everybody's done their best. Everybody's pulled together and stayed calm. And you know, um, yeah, what what happens in the future, we will we will deal with in the future. Um, again, the core values that are that are important to us as a primary school um, around lead the way to life, children feeling safe and happy, achieving social mobility and contribution um, to society. That those those things are in place before um, they'll be in place after. And I can imagine that given the lockdown and the loss of that sort of space for human social interaction, there's been a great deal of emphasis on the importance of mental health and well-being during this time as well. Yeah, definitely. Um, certainly, you know, again, our curriculum is based around uh, what we consider the five pillars of brain health um, um, and, you know, positive brain health has been a part of our curriculum for, for a number of years. Um we're responding to what we see. We're not, we're not, we, you know, we're seeing a lot of children. It's been absolutely fantastic. Um, we opened on the 1st of June for reception year one and six. Um, we've had the remaining year groups in, in school now um, for the second week. So we're seeing most of our children now face to face before the summer break, um, staying in touch with home learning and, and our blogs, which we're, which we're all well-placed. We're, we're a very strong school for IT. Um so yeah, keeping keeping everybody positive, optimistic, um, knowing our children, knowing our families very well, um, knowing where we need to target support, not presuming that people need need that support. You know, coming at it from a from a positive, um, can do, resilient attitude, but but being there ready, um, as we would in any situation, to target that support in a dignified, responsive way if if, if necessary, but not not presuming it's needed, Scott. And thinking about the future and what the new normal might bring with it if we consider that just before we do wrap things up on the program neil what do you think the next year will bring for yourself and for Wombridge, and what do you really hope to achieve in that time um wow just just trying to get back to to normalcy see how we've maintained consistency of what's been important i think it's 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 the values that i've talked about before how have those values been tested uh maintained throughout this period and how we're going to pick up afterwards uh, i see a lot of kindness and a lot of optimism um, a lot of people uh, reflecting through, through this this process as to what really is important um so yeah we'll 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 see what september brings it's certainly going to be um, an interesting and uncertain time um, as the education yeah. sector sort of readjusts to full-time provision again. And it's, of course, one thing speculating as to the challenges that that will bring. And it's another entirely having the opportunity to review it and look back just to see exactly what does come to pass. So I think it would be fantastic, Neil, given how informative it's been having you discuss these issues with us on the programme today, to perhaps catch up and have you back on the air with us in a few months' time just to see how things are getting on in that regard. That'd be great. Yeah, super. I think that would be fantastic as well, Neil, because I've really enjoyed having you join us on uh, the programme today. It's a shame we don't have more time. Otherwise, I'm sure we could discuss these issues long into the afternoon for sure. Um, but I have to say, um, Neil, until we do speak again in the uh, the future, do most importantly take care and stay safe with all still going on as well, because we're certainly not out of the woods with COVID-19 yet. No, that's a certain. Many thanks. 
That was Neil Sator speaking, head teacher at Wombridge Primary School in Telford. Coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary and Chairman of the Leaders' Council, Lord David Blunkett. Lord Blunkett is currently an active member of the House of Lords, as well as being a former Labour MP and Secretary of State. During his political career, however, he actually held a number of senior positions in Tony Blair's cabinet and served as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years, rising to prominence as one of the most notable politicians of his generation, all despite being blind from birth. He was first elevated to the House of Lords in August 2015 when he was anointed Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough, his old constituency. And I hope that you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew relished the opportunity to speak with Lord Blunkett. All of that is coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage obviously take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to. But we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 
2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself. And there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's a severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons, uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like. Uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere, 
uh, across the world and taking them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people 
to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm-hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Donald Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, Well, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London. But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, Rightly so. Um, Now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we we saw SARS and other things emerging. I I think it would, people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in you deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Sh- um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations? 
that we don't have a vaccine for, mm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the, for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who had only just come into office was planning to deliver 
the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is layered in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public, who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently, let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently, uh, the changes in the, uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent 
professional lawyer who, as director of public prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition, more importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did. And the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector. People with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Mr. Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. 
What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakira needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm-hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority, and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the Cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from Mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, thank you for coming on the the program. It's been an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.